Thank you. Thank you. Uh, nice to see you all again. Um, so, like Nigel said, I, I'm not really sure, Nigel wasn't really sure either how this was going to work. So, I've got some material, I'll do some teaching. If you've got questions, please ask your questions as we go along. Um, it would be much more constructive, I think, if, if, if we can make it interactive like that. So, we're just seeing how we go. I... I'm passionate about theology. I think that theology should point us towards Jesus. I think any theology that doesn't point us towards Jesus isn't theology at all. Um, I think that we're all theologians. It's just whether we're good theologians or bad theologians. And so I, I think it's really important uh, to study and learn about the character of God. And the more, the more I've learned the more it's caused me to question my assumptions and the more it's made me fall in love with Jesus. Um, and so uh, I did a lot of study on Deuteronomy last year and so I asked Nigel if I could talk on that. I think one of the key things about it is it's not as boring as you think it is. Um, it, uh, Deuteronomy means second reading. That's what the word means in Greek. Uh, it's probably the book that Josiah, the king, discovered um, that uh, revived Israel uh, at one point in its history. It's the fourth most quoted book in the New Testament, uh, and it basically is a summary of the whole story of the Old Testament. Um, Longman and Dillard say that it's one of the most significant books in the Old Testament, and I would argue that it is the heart of the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and give you a sort of a skeleton for it so you can go away and, and read it and, and study and, and learn the details. I, in terms of resources, I, I really recommend the Bible Project. Have you come across the Bible Project? Um, their stuff is fantastic. They do amazing videos. They also do incredible podcasts where they might have six hours worth of discussion that goes into a 10-minute video if you want to go deeper. Um, but certainly worth looking at their, um, their video on Deuteronomy uh, when we go from here. But I want to give you a bit of an overview of the structure of it, and you can put the flesh on it later. So we'll look at the structure of the book. We'll look at the Shema, the, the uh, Ten Commandments and the Law. We'll look at justice, and, and then a bit of a summary of it all. Um, <clears throat> so the structure of the book, uh, Hill and Walton say that it is a charter document for Israel. It, it mirrors diplomatic treaties from the ancient Near East at the same time. So the, the people of Israel have come through the wilderness. They spent the 40 years there. They're, they're on the, the border about to take hold, be received the promise that God had given them. And so this is all taking place just before they cross over. So only, jo uh, uh, only Joshua and Caleb out of the original generation, have survived. Moses isn't going to make it over there, but he's the one who's, who's, who's telling this story or, or, or giving this teaching. Um, so these were all children when they left Egypt, apart from those three. Um, and so uh, McCon McConville, he says that it's a model for the organisation of life of a people under God. It's basically the constitution of Israel. That's what Deuteronomy is, the constitution uh, of what Israel is. Uh, Longman and Dillard say that it, it, it paints a picture of what the ideal Israel should be. 
centred around the worship of Yahweh. So it, the structure of it is that there are three species. The first one, Deuteronomy 1 uh, to 4, 43, uh, and the second, uh, 4 to 28, 68, and the third one, 29 to 30, uh, and then the last words in the death of Moses. So <clears throat> how, how does it work? The first section is looking back their history. How did they get to where they were? What did God rescue them from in the very first place? How did God uh, deliver them as, as a slave, a people of slaves? He, he brought them through the wilderness. They made loads and loads and loads of mistakes. And so this whole first part is about remember who you were. Remember who saved you. Remember what happened when you ignored him over and over again. Remember who you are as a people of God. Philip Yancey says the whole book could be uh, summarized with the word remember. It's really big in Jewish culture. Remember, remember what has happened that's brought you to here. Remember that. <clears throat> and you, you've got to realize Israel was a really tiny nation. Militarily, it had no chance whatsoever of, of overcoming any of the other nations around it. It was a small nation. It was utterly dependent on Yahweh. And so it, it, it's, it's really crucial that they recognize who they are, what they've come from. Um, and in, in uh, 7.6, it talks about they were chosen to be a, a people, his treasured possession. Now, this is really significant because in all the other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the king was considered to be the, the treasured possession of the gods. And that's what gave him his power and authority. But with, with Deuteronomy, what's happening is that, that uh, Yahweh is saying, you, the people of God, are my treasure possession. And it's quite significantly different from anyone else around them. Um, the second speech uh, is, is the laws themselves. And this is what we're going to spend most of the time looking at. Uh, and the third space, uh, speech is, is a call to faithfulness. I have set before you life and death. Blessings and cursings. Now choose death. Uh, choose death. Choose life. <laughs> this is the way to live. I've told you how to live. And, and you know, the real tragedy of it is that, is that you, 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 you read all this and you get to the end of the book. And Moses steps down in, in 31.16 and God says to him, basically, as soon as, soon as you're dead, they're just going to forsake me and break the covenant. <laughs> if I was Moses, I'd be like, why didn't you tell me that at the beginning? I've just spent the last however many hours telling them, and you're telling me they're not going to take any notice of it. And it's, it's quite heartbreaking because you see in, the, in this, this story, you see the prophecy of what's going to happen and, and how it's going to go wrong. You see it all mapped out. You see where they've come from. You've seen what they're meant to be, and you're going to see what's going to happen in the future. This is why it summarizes the whole of the Old Testament. Um, so... The Shema, the Ten Commandments, and the Law. Shema literally means listen or pay attention. It's the first word of, uh, this is the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being, and all your strength. Now, a, a good Jew was meant to say this when they got up in the morning and before they went to bed at night. This uh, and Shema is the first word, here, here. It means listen, pay attention. Um, and and uh, uh, Hill and Walton say this is the, the entire message 
of, of Deuteronomy is summed up in this one thing. And there's some, there's some arguments there. So it, it's probably quite familiar to us because we, we've heard Jesus say, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the, he's quoting two things. He's quoting a Shema in Deuteronomy 6, and he's quoting a really quite obscure passage in Leviticus 19 about loving your neighbor. Um, you see, Yahweh, the Lord our God, love the Lord your God. It, it isn't possible to love God and not love his image. You can't do that. John's pretty clear about that. John's really quite strong in, in the way he says it. Yeah, anyone who says they love God but they don't love their neighbour is a liar. And, and so I, I think the Shema, it's, it's implied. It's, it's, I think probably Jesus had to reiterate it and, and make it really clear because things had fallen so far. But the Shema, this thing that centered, Israel is centred around every morning, every evening, we pray, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being, and all your strength. Every morning, every evening. And, and Dumbrell, Dumbrell says that this is the great commandment that sums up the other ten. And I think this is, this is really key to understanding. This, this is the centre of the idea of the law. Okay? You know, we, we, we talk about the law, there's 600 and fish and chips laws and it's all about boundary fences and and all this obscure stuff and we think what's that got to do with anything but what it's all about is this loving the lord our god with all our heart all our mind all our strength and and implied in that is loving one another because we are all created in his image the two are inseparable and so everything revolves around this so the next thing is 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 the ten commandments now i think that the ten commandments is an expansion of the Shema. So the Ten Commandments is, is uh, divided into two parts. Please stop me if you've got questions. Don't assume you're the only one with questions. I've got questions and I wrote this. <clears throat> uh, you should have no other gods before me. What does that statement tell us straight away? What questions should that raise in us straight away? You should have no other gods before me. There are other gods. So the word for gods is Elohim. Um, And we see throughout the the Old Testament that actually monotheism doesn't mean there is no other god. It means there's no other god like Yahweh. Um, the word Elohim, it, uh, it, it means lesser God, it means demigod, it means spiritual being, uh, it refers, it, it, it's referenced loads. In the New Testament, the Greek word for it is daemon. Any idea what that might be in English? Demon. Demon. It's not, the gods aren't necessarily evil or lesser gods, but there are lesser gods. And, and there is not, none of them are like Yahweh. None of them are like him. So don't worship any other gods. Don't worship. They're going into Canaan where the gods demand animal, uh, human sacrifice. They're going into Canaan where um, the, the, the temple prostitution and, and trying to convince the gods to, to send rain and manipulate the gods. 
They're going into a culture where you go to war on behalf of your God and, and the best God wins. And God says, don't have any other gods. Don't worship gods like those because they're, they're not like me. They're nothing like me. Just no other gods, no other Elohim but Yahweh. And so where you see in the, in the Old Testament says the Lord, Lord God, it means Yahweh Elohim. Uh, that's how it's literally said. No idols. Uh, we should have no idols. Why should we have no idols? What's the problem with idols? Yeah, more than that though. Okay, more than that though. More simple than that. Okay, all of those are true. Yeah, all of those things are true. All of those things would be true of the first commandment as well. But the thing is, God has made idols. God has made images of himself. Who, who, who are the idols of God? We are. So why would we make another image and worship that when he has made images? The word that, where he says, it says we're made in the image of God, the word is icon. In the Septuagint terms, icon. It's the same thing. God has made an image of himself, an idol of himself, to, so the world can see what he is like. So why would we try to improve on that? Don't have any other, don't have idols because you are the idols. Don't misuse the word of Yahweh. Now this is an interesting one because I guess, you know, if you had a Christian upbringing like me, um, that, that meant, you know, don't say, oh God, that's really terrible. I remember that I had a girlfriend once and she said that in a room full of Christians and everyone went really quiet and it was really funny. Uh, I wasn't a Christian at the time and I found it embarrassing. Um, but that's not what it means. That's not what it means. To, to, to misuse, to, to take the name of Yahweh in vain means to use the name of Yahweh to justify things. I mean, let's take a crazy example that we would never see today. Let's go and invade a third world country because God has told us it's okay. Let's, let's go and... Uh, let, let's go and do this because God's told me. Don't say God told you. Don't say Yahweh told you to do it if it's not true. And, and that, that's what it is. So when he says don't take the name of Yahweh in vain, don't, don't use him to justify your plans. I, I mean, I, I get, this is one of my little bugbears, but I am very nervous of people who say God told me. Because it finishes an argument straight away, doesn't it? You can't, you can't have any kind of... There's no accountability. If you say, God told me to do it, there's no accountability there, is there? You can't have a, a discussion with someone if they just finish it with... Like, it's like, you know, maybe, I, think, I think maybe God told me to do that. I might be wrong, but that's how, that's how I feel. That, that's okay. But to say God told me to do this and be wrong is to take the name of God in vain. I hope that makes sense. I hope I'm not offending anyone. Uh, the Sabbath. Now, Walter Brueggemann says that he claims that all of the Ten Commandments can be summed up in the Sabbath. Um, <clears throat> these first four commandments, okay, are about how we relate to Yahweh. 
We don't worship another god. We don't make idols of him because we are an idol of him. We don't misuse his name. We don't use his name to justify our actions. And the Sabbath is about trust. It's about, um, you know, you're talking about an agricultural people. Um, I don't know anything about farming, but I imagine if you're a farmer, the idea of not getting up and, I don't know, milking the cows, checking the fields, checking your sheep for a whole day must leave you very nervous. (laughs) Because the grass doesn't stop growing and the crops don't stop growing and the cattle don't need, don't suddenly not need feeding and all of those things. So the idea of taking a whole day every week and just saying, I'm going to trust that you've got it in hand is terrifying, but it's all about faith. It's all about faith. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the Sabbath as we go on, but it's all about trusting in him. So... Um, for us to not take a Sabbath, for us to not take a day, is, is to say, I don't need you. And therein lies a problem straight away. It's built into the rhythm of everything in Israel. So these first four are all about how we relate to God. Uh, the next seven are about how we relate to one another. Can I just ask a question? Yes, you can. And to me, in the Old Testament, as much struggle with the Old Testament, is God kind of does stuff like that. There's one particular one that perturbs me in Judges, okay. where um, there's a guy who says to God, I will sacrifice the first thing yeah. I see. And the first thing he sees when he gets home is his daughter. daughter. Yeah. And, and surely, seriously, could God not release him from that promise? To me, that's, that's human sacrifice. Yeah, it is. Um, I think a lot of the Old Testament is teaching us about the people of God. I think they do a lot of things. Um, There's a lot of violence in the name of Yahweh. It was normal in the ancient Near East where you, when you go and invade someone else, you credit that victory to your God. And you write the history that your God told you to do it. Because your God's bigger than their God. And so, so a lot of what we see in those violent passages is, is exactly that model written down. You know, Yahweh told us to go and do this. He told us to wipe out everyone. And, and we, we see that. But I think that tells us more about the people and their misunderstanding of who Yahweh was. Because who, who, what, what is the perfect image of who Yahweh is? Jesus. So, you know, Hebrews 1 tells us it's the perfect image. Jesus himself says, when you look at me, you've seen the Father. And so we see that Jesus... <laughs> so, so, we, when, so, so my understanding, if that's what Yahweh is like, then we have to use that to interpret the rest of Scripture. And, and so either it's wrong or... We just haven't got it, or, or there's something else to it. And I think in a lot of those things, see, I can't remember, what was his name? Um, it, it's, 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 it's with Jay, isn't it? But he, yeah. 
But God didn't tell him to do that. Jephthah, is it? Yeah. So Jephthah, God didn't tell him to do that. Nowhere does it say that he told him to do that. Nowhere did it say that God demanded any kind of vow from him. And so that I would read that and say, okay, the problem is he told, he was he was projecting onto Yahweh the same way that they worship Baals. So you have to manipulate this God to do what you want him to do. So if I if I make a deal with Yahweh, then I'll win. And that's where the problem starts. Because that's not what he's like. That's why he's saying don't have other don't worship other gods. Because what you're doing in doing that is worshiping another god. So the problem was that. So he's he's made a deal. And so the, the problem is him. God's never demanded that of him. Yahweh never said, you know, you have to make a deal or, or I won't bless you. In fact, quite the opposite. Do you see what I mean? So, so I, I don't think that's a, that's a picture of what God's like. I think that's a picture of how the people misunderstood him. And we see, we see even in the Old Testament that um, think their understanding of him progresses. Um, and, and we see Jesus say, you've heard it said this, but I say this. You see, you see Jesus quoting Isaiah in Luke 4. Um, he says, this, this is the day, uh, uh, this is the year of the favour of our Lord. And he stops, whereas Isaiah says, the day of the vengeance of our God. Now, either Jesus didn't know his scripture properly, which is impossible, um, or he's just going, no, that's not what it's about. This is the day of the favour of our Lord. And so a lot, a lot of times we see this. So I don't think it means the Old Testament's wrong. I think a lot of what we see in the Old Testament tells us about the people more than it tells us about him. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just really made you sound like you want to run away because I sound really liberal. Okay. Uh, anyone want to ask any more questions on the back of that? No? So, uh, number four, the Sabbath. So the first four are about how we relate to God. The second seven are about how we relate to one another. As I said, uh, Brueggemann reckons the Sabbath encapsulates the Ten Commandments. I'm putting the Sabbath down twice in case you haven't noticed. Because it is about how we trust God, but it is also really important about how we relate to one another. And I, arguably the whole structure of, of Israel is built around the idea of Sabbath. They were slaves. How often do slaves rest? Never. 400 years, they were a slave nation. And God says to them, you are going to build rest into your week. And your animals are going to rest. Your crops are going to rest. Your servants are going to rest. Your children are going to rest. Your wives are going to rest. Everyone gets to rest. And this is really radical. You, your, your slaves and your servants are resting as well. You know, that is a radically different nation from any other one. So, resting. Uh, where have we got to? Honour your father and mother. Um, it's, it's an oral tradition. Everything is passed on in, in the families, in the clans, in the tribes. It's passed on. The teaching is passed on word of mouth. They will learn about Yahweh. The rabbis didn't emerge until after the temples were gone. The temple was gone. So, they learn together as a family. So honour your father and mother. I, I think it means more than just do what they tell you, but learn from them and respect them. And, and I think, um, I feel like I had a moment of revelation. The Lord told me, so this is definitely true. You can't argue with it because it was definitely 
an angel appeared to me. Um, no, I wonder whether there's something about this which, which, which talks, which is about how we learn from our spiritual fathers and mothers as well. Because I look back at the history of the church and I would say, perhaps controversially, that the two moments of, of biggest misdirection in the church are when this didn't happen. When at the, at the advent of Christendom, when the church and state became linked, large swathes of the teaching from the early church fathers was just ignored. And, and Christianity was reinvented. Things that we take as, as granted in the West now, things like original sin, was invented by Augustine in the 4th century, in the 5th century. No Jew ever believed in it. No Christian who had anything to do with putting our Bible together or anything to do with the creeds ever believed in it. But now people who argue against that are labelled as a heretic. You can't sign the evangelical statement of faith if you don't agree with that. And, and, and I think that's a case of not honouring our father and mother because what happened was we just swept away all the teaching from before. And the second time that happened was at the Reformation. Well, everything that went before was swept away. So that's just my tuppence worth. That's absolutely free. But I think there's something about honouring our father, our spiritual fathers and mothers and, and learning and not just assuming that we know best and that we can just take it from here. We don't need anything that you've said. Uh, do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not give false testimony. I think in many ways, uh, number six to nine are pretty much all to do with do not cover. Because I think that's the root of all these other things. Because the idea of, of coveting is, is, is basically rooted in my life would be better if. My life would be better if I, I had what that person had. My life would be better if, if I could get that person in trouble. Specifically, false testimony is about getting somebody else into trouble. Um, but it, it's about being content. If we are genuinely content and satisfied in who we are, then we will not be coveting. If we're not coveting, we won't need to steal or murder or commit adultery or give false testimony or any of those things. Um, but those Ten Commandments are an expansion of the Shema. And, and then, so, so what we have is we have the Shema at the centre of the Ten Commandments, and then the rest of the laws are basically the details for a people at a time, in a given culture, in a given place, of how to work out in daily life what it meant to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength and all your being. Um, <clears throat> something that, that is really important to note, only one book in the whole Bible mentions love more than Deuteronomy. And that is John's Gospel. Only one book. The whole book is meant to be centred around the idea of loving Yahweh and loving one another. And, and the rest of it is the details of how to work that out. How to treat people with honour. How to give people their humanity and, and treat them uh, lovingly. That's what it's all about. So a big part of that is justice. Um. <clears throat> The word just for justice in Hebrew is mishpat. Uh, it means fairness to all, particularly to the vulnerable. 
fairness to the vulnerable. That's what mishpat means. That's what justice means. Uh, the word righteousness, sedek. Now, you see, normally when we talk about righteousness in the West, we ref- it, it, it means about it, it means not doing anything wrong, being good. But actually, the Hebrew word sedek means um, doing right to others. That's what it means, especially the vulnerable. So actually, justice is a system of righteousness. So a system that is fair to the vulnerable is a system of people doing right to, to everyone, who, especially the vulnerable. That's what it means. And 50 times, I think, the words justice and righteousness occur together. Our God is a righteous and just. Yeah. So can you just go back over the definition of justice? Okay, so mishpat, justice, it, it means uh, fairness to the vulnerable. So it's, it's a system of, of fairness to everyone, particularly to the vulnerable. And the word sedek means to do right to others, particularly those who are vulnerable. So when we talk about a God who's righteous and just, we're not just saying God is God doesn't do anything wrong. We're saying a God who is uh, who does right to everyone and calls us to be righteous and just. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Deuteronomy is really big on this. There need be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance. He will richly bless bless you. Does that remind you of anything? There will need be no poor people among you. What does it remind you of? Jesus said that there will always be. Yeah. But where have we heard something like that, though? We'll come on to that in a second. Acts 4, 34. There were no poor among them. It, it actually took until Acts before they got anything close to this. So lots of, lots of different scholars disagree on what this means. Some of them say it's a command. You shouldn't have any poor among you. Some of them say it's an ideal. Some of them talk about it as a, a hope for the future that there'll be no poor. But the point is, what he's saying is, everything you need is going to be there. So there is absolutely no reason why anyone should be poor. Because I will provide you with everything you need. In other words, the only reason anyone is poor is because you are not acting righteously and with justice. And then almost immediately after saying this, two, three verses later, if anyone is poor among you, uh, anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns or land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. So there, there, there should be no poor among you, and then here's how to deal with the poor. God has given you enough. There will always be enough for his people. There will always be enough. So the only reason there isn't enough is because you are not treating one another with justice and righteousness. Um, in, in the ancient Near East, uh, poverty it wasn't seen in the same way that we see it today. So poverty uh, related to um, a loss of status, uh, to shame that, in t- that comes from that. And so, I mean, obviously financial poverty is a key factor in that. But, but the idea of poverty meant people who are marginalised on the outside who had no status, had no, um, or, 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 or just shame. And so uh, that's really important to understand that concept of poverty because within, uh, within Deuteronomy, you've got what's called the, the 
quartet of the vulnerable. There are four different kinds of the vulnerable who are mentioned. The, the first is the poor. Um, and, and essentially, that meant those who had fallen on hard times. We're going to look at it in more detail in a minute. And then, then you have the widows, the orphans, and the immigrants. Now, if you bear in mind the whole inheritance, the whole promise to Israel was the land. Um, and so every tribe was uh, appointed land. Here you go, look, there's a picture. That's not exactly what Israel looked like, but uh, it's all of the tribes were appointed land. Within that, the clans were appointed land. Within that, the families were, so everybody had land. They, they grew their crops on it. They, uh, they had their uh, herds on it. That, that was their source of security. That was their source of food, of, of prosperity. Everything came from the land. Everything. And so uh, it was shared equally among everyone. The, the exception was the tribe of Levi, who had no land. And their role was to keep Israel focused onto Yahweh. Uh, and so all the other tribes were told to give a percentage of their produce to look after the Levites so that they didn't starve because they had no source of any kind of income. Um, <clears throat> now, when we look back at the Quartet of the Vulnerable, especially these bottom three, what do they all have in common? The widows, the orphans, the immigrants. Yeah, no family. No land. So they had no land. They had no means of supporting themselves. There was nothing that they could do to support themselves. And so uh, that's why uh, we're going to talk more about that. But uh, where have we got to? So, yeah, so all, all the... Um, all of, all of the people were told they had to leave the edges of the field. They were not to harvest the edges of the field, and that belonged to the poor and the widows and the orphans and the immigrants um, because they were on the outside. They were the vulnerable. So, so let's see the poor. Let's look at who the poor are. So you've got Josh, Tobias, uh, Eli, and Isaac, and they've all got their land apportioned to them. But what, what happens is that... Um, uh, Josh falls on a bit of hard times, so he sells some of his land to Tobias. And Isaac falls on hard times, and he sells some to, to Eli. He, maybe he can't produce enough food, maybe he's been ill, maybe his animals have been ill, maybe he's had a problem with his crops, whatever it is. He sells it to it. But now it's more difficult for him to support his family because he hasn't got as much land. And so eventually what happens is he ends up selling all of his land to Tobias, um, and Eli ends up, ends up selling most of his to Isaac. And it's only... A matter of time before Isaac is, is stuffed. And so the poor specifically referred to uh, Josh and Isaac, who had lost their land. They'd fallen on hard times. They were people, they had, they had an inheritance, but for one reason or another, it hadn't worked out. And that was separate from the widows, the orphans, and the immigrants who had no inheritance. Does that make sense? So when you see the poor talked about in Deuteronomy, that is what it's referring to, those people. Remember that poverty is about shame. Um, But here's where it's really important, because the laws in Deuteronomy put the onus on those who had to look after the poor. So uh, some commentators particularly note uh, this this passage. Um, 
in Deuteronomy, I'll read, that's too small, 13, no, 15. So if there is any among you, so if, if among you, anyone is in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your needy neighbour. You should rather open your hand willingly, lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the seventh year of remission is near, and therefore view your needy neighbour with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbour might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needing neighbour in your land. So, uh, obviously the emphasis is mine there. <laughs> but the point, the point is, if poverty is about shame and poverty is about loss of status, the laws that Yahweh has given specifically make it the absolute responsibility of those who are in, in good standing to support those who aren't. It's not charity, it's the way it has to be. So no one should have to come begging you because it is your responsibility to make sure they're okay. And, and this, this is... It seems subtle, but it's really radical because actually what it's doing is it's lifting all the shame of poverty because no, no widow or, from, or immigrant should ever come and beg you for food because you should have left enough food for them on the edge of your, uh, on the edge of your land. And no one who, who is poor should be suffering because you should help them out. It's your responsibility. And, and as part of that, you have the whole system of Sabbath um, where every seventh, uh, every seventh day, everyone rests. Uh, every seventh year, everyone rests. The ground rests. There's no farming for a whole year. There's no, no one works for a year, a year off. Gap year. The year, a year off. All the slaves are freed and debts are cancelled. That's why in the early passage in, uh, in, verse, in chapter 15, he talks about, don't, don't think to yourself, hang on a minute, the, the, the Sabbath year is coming, so if I lend him some money, the debt's going to get cancelled, I'm never getting my money back, so I'm not going to lend him any money. And Yahweh specifically, don't you dare think like that. Because ultimately, it comes back to, I have provided enough for everyone. And if someone doesn't have enough, that means someone's got too much. And so that one with too much, it's your responsibility to look after them. Um, and then there's the year of Jubilee, which is when, when Jesus talks about the year of the Lord's favour, the year of Jubilee. So every seventh day is a day off, every seventh year is a year off, and then every 50th year is, is another year off, the, the year of Jubilee. So you get to year 49, you have a year off, you have another year off afterwards. But more than that, everyone's land gets restored to its original owner. It is impossible for anyone to get rich on the back of his brother or sister. There is no chance of exploitation. No one will ever get caught in a poverty trap 
because in a year of Jubilee, everything's cancelled, you get it all back, and the next generation start again without having to deal with the inheritance you've given them. Except, there's no record that Israel ever took a Sabbath year or a year of Jubilee. Ever. You just about to ask me. No record they ever did it. And in fact, there's a strong argument that the number of years they spent in exile equaled the number of Sabbath years and Jubilee years that they never took. So once again, this is how it should have been. A system set up so that no one could ever get poor. Nobody ever gets rich on the back of anyone else. The whole system is like that. But the rich have a responsibility for the poor. The poor do not have to humiliate themselves by asking for help. Uh, <clears throat> so again, in, uh, we have tithing. Tithing, I think, is one of the most misunderstood things. And um, it, it's right to say this in a room that's not full of pastors. But um, <clears throat> if you want to get legalistic about tithing, let's talk about the legalistic side of it. Every, every year they were meant to give 10% to the Levites. Kind of makes sense. There's 11 tribes. There's one tribe that doesn't have any food, so you give them 10% of your food. Okay? Just makes sense, doesn't it? It's just basic... Otherwise, they all die, and we stop focusing on Yahweh, and it just becomes communism. Uh, Also, every year, a further 10% of your produce, it's not money, it's your produce, you take to the temple, you all go up to the temple, and you have a big feast together. Every third year, there's another 10%. uh, And that is for the immigrants, the orphans, the widows, and also the Levites. This is the first known law in the history of the world where a tax is for the poor. There is no record in any other culture before this that was ever a tax for the poor. So if you want to be legalistic about tithing, just to be clear, it's 20% for two years and then 30% on the third year. So you could just average that out at 23 and a 3rd and you'll be okay if you want to be legalistic about it. There's three different times. But the, the key one here is, that is the final one, the fact that This is incredibly radical. This is a society that is built around a system of Sabbath, that is built around a responsibility for those who have not, and it's built around a law where you are are meant to give to the poor specifically. And that, that was unprecedented in the world until that point. Never heard of. Okay, one more thing. Why would I put slavery under justice? Deuteronomy 15. This is one of the... This is an interesting one. I, I think this is um, I think this is really significant. Uh, so, once again, we have this situation where Josh has sold everything he's got to the buyers. He has no source of income. So, this is the starting point. Josh is, is destitute. He's got nothing left anymore. Isaac's really struggling. He's got hardly anything. So, Josh is on the outside. Uh, what can he do? Well, what he can do is he can sell himself to employment, which is why a member of your community, whether a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and works for you. That would be why this would happen for six years. In the seventh year, you should set that person free. And when you send a male slave out from you, a free person, you should not send him out empty-handed. Provide liberally out of your flock your threshing floor and your wine press, thus giving to him some of the bounty with which the Lord your God has blessed you. So, Josh's got no source of income anymore. 
he goes to uh, Tobias and he says, can you help me out? And so Tobias is now obliged to take him on as an employee. It's not slavery, not, not the way we understand slavery, not like the transatlantic slave trade. He's taking him on as an employee so that he's got some way means of supporting himself. He has him for six years. He has him for seven years, but at least one of those years is going to be a year of jubilee. Well, one of those years is going to be a year of Sabbath, so he, he's only going to be working six of those. He's got a whole year off, even though he's working for him. He's provided for, his family looked after, he's got everything he needs. At the end of that, if he wants to stay on as an employee, he, he can do. It's his choice, not the owner's choice. It's not uh, Tobias's choice, it's Josh's choice. If he wants to. If he doesn't, Tobias has to give him enough stuff so that he can get himself set up again. Does that sound like slavery? To me, that sounds like social action. To me, that sounds like a social enterprise. To me, that sounds like a way of helping people to come out of the poverty trap they've got into and get re-established. That sounds like justice and righteousness to me. It's this amazing, it's not slavery. There's actually very little mention of, of slavery in any of the laws in terms of what we would understand. There's one sort of throwaway passage about taking slaves from uh, foreign nations. But it's not something that they're taught on. It's not something they're encouraged to do. It's certainly not something that appears Yahweh is very happy about. So when we see slavery in the Old Testament, we are not talking about the slavery that they escaped from. We are not talking about the slavery we understand now. We're actually talking about employment. This guy has rights. This guy, you know, he, if, if he's good and, and his employer wants to keep him on, he's got to treat him really well. Or he's not staying. If he's not, if he's not staying, he's got enough to set him up again so he can get started. Yes? Although if they didn't comply with the Sabbath year, did they comply with this? Well, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? This is again where we learn that the Old Testament tells us a lot about how people disobeyed Yahweh rather than, you know, if this is the ideal for what Israel should be, then, you know, this is, this. see, I think this gives us a picture of what a community God should be. And, and so yeah, this is about justice in the true sense of what justice is. This is about righteousness in the true sense of what righteousness is. This, this is about building uh, a community. Uh, so, I mean, this is the summary of it. It worked for seven years, provide them, look after them, in the end they want to, they, they, just said it like, they want to say, right. Okay, so the summary. So in Deuteronomy 4, I'm, I'm coming back to what you said because it's so, Deuteronomy 4, 7 and 8. So as Moses is summing up how you've got to, he says, I'm going to give you a load of laws. And people will look at these laws and they will say, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us, whenever we pray to him. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees, righteous decrees, decrees that care about the vulnerable, and laws as this body of laws I am saying before you today. So right at the outset, Moses says this, people will look at Israel and they will say that is not like any other nation. Because their God is not like our gods and their laws are completely about justice and righteousness and making uh, and, and looking after the vulnerable.
See, the whole system of laws, the whole book of Deuteronomy, this manifesto for what the people of God should be, this, this treaty, this agreement, this, this kind of charter of who Israel should be is, is radical and it is built completely around the idea of preserving human dignity. It is centred around the worship of Yahweh and that is kept in place by the Levites being supported. And the outworking of that, the outworking of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your strength and your being is is these laws totally weighted in, in favour of, of giving dignity and humanising people in, in a culture where that was not the case. And it's about rights and not charity. That, that no one needed to beg. No one needed to humble themselves. So, so this is the manifesto, manifesto for the people of God, as, as I was saying. This is a model of a just society. This is, this is centred around Yahweh and his image. This is a system of righteousness. This is, uh, uh, Dumbrell says, it's a constitution built around justice and egalitarian justice. Sorry, uh, uh, no, sorry, he, he calls it egalitarian justice, yeah. Um, and, but it's a blueprint for what the people of God should be like. And therefore, it's a blueprint of what humanity should be like. So we can get caught up in the laws and what seem to us to sometimes be frighteningly uh, strict or something like that. And we have, but we have to understand what a huge step forward those laws are in comparison with any of the nations around them. That actually those laws are an expansion of the idea of loving God and loving neighbour. And that this is a nation that should reflect that. And this is, it's a taste of the age to come, where there is no poor among us, where there is no exploitation, there is no oppression, there is no one who is left behind, there is no one who is not given their dignity, there is no one who is not humanised, there is nobody that will have to humiliate themselves ever. It's just the beginning of a, of a taste of this. Um, you know, the funny thing is that the communism is actually a Jewish heresy. Communism is kind of a little bit, in theory, a little bit like this, but without Yahweh at the centre of it. And, and, that, and the thing is, that that's like having a car without an engine in it. It's not going to work. Because it, it has to stay focused on Yahweh. Because uh, 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 unless we can see people as the image of him, as his idols we will miss the point of why, why to treat people with justice and righteousness. And so, uh, I'm nearly done. I hope you've got some questions. But it comes down to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being, and all your strength. And if we can get that bit right, then the rest of it is just the detail. And so it, it's, it's terribly sad when you read Deuteronomy and then you read what Israel did. It's terribly sad when you realise this, this incredible vision that was put before them of how they should be and that they just didn't do it. 
And we only start to see a taste of this in the beginnings of Acts. We only start to see a taste of it after Pentecost, actually beginning to see what, what was um, uh, presented here. Um, so Deuteronomy is not as boring as it was. Uh, but you have to read it, through, look at it through that lens, as a, um, starting with that passage, that, that, the Shema. Start with that and understand the rest of it in the light of that. If you get sticky questions and do sticky laws, then you know, try and find out why it is, because it's got to be about love. Because it's about a society built around love. Right, I'm done. Anyone got any questions? <laughs> yes? You were talking about, uh, like, I guess, interpreting a lot of, like, uh, uh, Ten Commandments through the Shema and lots of things like that. I, yeah. I, I came across that idea, like, really recently, but I can't remember. Um, is there a book on it? Um, like, a reference? Deuteronomy. Oh, sorry. Um. <laughs> but, like, exploring, exploring how, like, the Jewish mindset they process things through the Shema. Well, I mean, I think... If you were to get any kind of decent commentary on on Deuteronomy, it's gonna it's gonna be saying that. A uh, really good commentary, if you want de- a good academic commentary, is, is McConville's. McConville's. That's a really good one. He in, in the um, the Bible Project video on that. He if you go onto their website, he recommends that that one. That's a really good commentary. But you know, all the commentaries I looked at were all. They all say the same thing. The Shema is the heart of the whole thing, which is why Jesus takes the Shema and says that that is the greatest commandment. And I think he adds the Leviticus 19:18 bit because he's trying to you know, go, and that means this. You know, he's kind of spelling it out for people who've missed the point. Yeah. Um, also, two um, questions. Sorry, Thank you it's me. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was going to say the. Um, the, the three taxes, the tithe. Yes. Um, would that have been their like tax as well? They paid tax on Yeah, but you you can't separate you can't separate the religious yeah. from the practical from the government because it that that's what Israel was. Yeah. So you can't separate tax and and we're not talking about money. They're not giving money. They're giving a percentage of their produce because that's what they have. Um, so I'm basically like, well, if it were 10% and then another 10% and then I'm starting to give an extra 10%, that's actually really good. Like, <laughs> it's really good tax. You have to like, give 10% to church, at least give however much you make to the government, and then extra giving on top of that, that, that could be in excess of the Israel. Yeah, but the point of it is, here's a people, God has provided this people with everything they need. Okay? And so, if you do this, then everyone has enough. If you don't do this, then some people don't have enough. Yeah. So, uh, that, that, that's the whole kind of ethos behind it. Is that, you know, the Levites have no way of making any money. And without the Levites, you don't keep Yahweh at the centre. Yeah. So, they don't have any land. So, you have to give 10% to them because that's enough for them to be supported. Because they're about 10% of the people of Israel. And... And then you go and have a party together because you remember you're one community. You're not just all of these separate tribes spread out across the country. And then you give money to the widows and the orphans, the immigrants, because they have no way of making money. Well, not money, I mean food. It sounds amazing and it doesn't sound punitive. No, it's not, it's not in any way punitive. But, but I think the key thing 
uh, one of the problems I have with a lot of Christian teaching on tithing is that it's a one-size-fits-all thing, whereas there's nothing even remotely close to that. It's like, if you have, you have a responsibility to look after those who don't. So the widows and the orphans aren't supposed to tithe 10% because they have nothing to do that. You, you, you know, it's, it's the resp- between you, I am providing with everything you need. So if you do what I say, everyone will have a fair amount. That's, that's what it's about. Well, they'd have a problem, wouldn't they? Because they're not, they're, they're, you know, if you're, if you're lazy, you're not going to get any crops, are you? <laughs> so would they, they would then be poor? They probably would end so up. So would it be the responsibility of other people to help them? Well, yeah. Yeah, it would. But, but I mean, when you reach, you're reaching that sort of state of poverty, you're talking about people who are, you know, it's, it's, it's your land. You need to feed your family. If you don't want to do anything, your family's going to go without. Um, and that's the first step. And then you're going to have to go and ask someone else for help. Um, and then, you know, you can't, you can't stay. You can't stay lazy. You can't hold out for another 50 years because it'll all come back to me. Because you'll be, you, do you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's like, it's not, you're not working for someone else. You're not going to get a salary, even if you're lazy. You just, if, you don't, if you don't work, you just want to be food. The widows, the orphans, and the immigrants got the edges of the field. Right, okay, not, <coughs> right, not everybody then. The poor um, were those who have, whether they're lazy or they're ill or whatever, they've lost their land or it hasn't produced enough to feed them. So there's, there's quite a lot between I'm deciding not to work this year and now I'm going to my neighbour. You know, you, you probably wouldn't live that long <laughs> if you just decided you weren't going to bother. My question was, you alluded to the fact that they, they didn't actually, it was a great idea, but they didn't actually never take it up. Were you aware of any time when they did live that out specifically or no. since other times in history where no. this has been no time at all? No. So, so the, yeah, so um, the, the question is all about application. So I don't know how much thought you've come across. Because there's obviously the Acts 2, and yeah, this is a model for the church. But how applicable yeah. this is, because this is an agrarian society. Yeah, you can't, you, you can't just plonk Israel. You can't read things like uh, 1 or 2 Chronicles 7, where it says, if my people humble themselves and pray, oh, bless the land. You can't read that as being England, yeah. uh, because he's talking about God's people... And their whole source of everything was the land. Um, so you can't just take all of these laws and just plonk them on today and say that's what it should be like. The point, the principle behind it, you can know the fact that it is all about justice, it's all about righteousness, the fact that no one gets left behind. Um, so I think one of the questions is how have you thought, as you thought about this, how have you, have you applied this? I'm still thinking about it. Still trying to work that out. I mean, it's just so not. To, I guess it's the ex, the extent that it's if you do this, you'll be the head and not the tail. 
and the extent to which that promise to the church or is it promise to individuals? Is it, can you take that too far? I think it's a promise for the age to come. I think it's, uh, you know, this gives us a little bit of a picture of what, what the world is going to be like, um, where everyone has equal value. I think it's a lesson in, in humanizing people. Um, because there are certain, you know, in what you are asking, what about the don't work? There are certainly cases where people today are in difficulties because they don't want to work, um, and you know, we we deal with situations like that in our in our church where people are just, I, I don't I don't want you to help me get out of this. I just want you to give me the money. I don't I don't want to have to learn how to live differently, and that's, but but in a sense, that's not that's not humanising someone. That's actually you, you just. That, that's not teaching them. How, it, this is why it's all, you know, it goes wrong for Israel because they, their focus turns away from Yahweh. They stop, they stop being focused on him. When they stop being focused on him, then all the rest of this falls apart. You know, so, so the solution to this is to refocus back on him. And um, so that we can we can be that society. So when you see it happening in Acts, it's after, immediately after that's happened. Um, yeah, there's no easy answer to it. Sorry. I'd say that um, all, all of that teaches about how, how a nation um, lives or a community lives and, and the difficulty we've got trying to live that out that that's not the, the community, the world, the culture, the country that we live in. Yeah. And probably we try to do it as individuals, but actually, if we can model it as, yeah. as a community, as a church, it's what we try to do. Yeah, I would say this is more relevant to us as a, as a body of people, yeah. as a family, yeah. as the church, than it is as trying to impose this on a nation. Yes, definitely. Again, that's a question. Um, Greg Boyd has a 1,500-page book all about the, called Crucifixion of the Warrior God, which is all about addressing violence in the Old Testament, particularly the idea of a kind of ethnic cleansing. Um, Christian Hofreiter has just written a book, um, which was it basically he looks at how people... Um, 
specifically the idea of you know, devote all of this to me, in other words, kill it all, um, and how historically through the church that has been viewed by um, theologians. And uh, so I was very keen to read that book and I got to the end of it. And at the end of it, he said, and so what we've learned is it's not simple. <laughs> well, great. So I didn't really need to work my three way through this incredibly complicated book to come to that conclusion because I already had that conclusion. That there are, you know, again, the arguments that uh, there's a, I can't remember where it is now, where he says to Moses, I am going to slowly drive them out. I am going to slowly move these people out of the nation so you can move in. And so Greg Boyd's argument is that Moses is thinking like a normal ancient Near Eastern person and he's hearing, I'm giving you this land, and he hears, that means we've got to go in and kill every man, woman and child because that's what it means in the ancient Near East. And so he, he, his argument is that, that, that Moses taking on, or, or Joshua, Moses telling Joshua, this is how we're going to do it. When actually what God has said to them is, I'm going to do this peacefully and slowly so the ground doesn't go go bad and, and do this. And so I, I don't know whether that's right. I think there's certainly something to that. I think there's certainly God didn't become a different God. Um, Christian Hofreiter's book, he says that the, the three assumptions are that God is good, genocide is evil, the Bible is true. <laughs> How do we work out those three things <laughs> to a satisfactory conclusion? Um, and I think that Greg Boyd is on something, but I also think he, uh, as Matt Lynch said, it, it, it's it's all too tidy. It's all too tied up. It does. It, it's not quite as simple as that. But but I I suspect there's something of. I'm not sure that God actually told them to do that. They just assumed that that's what he told them because that's what everybody else did. But then you could say that then about the Bible. I mean, your Bible written by man. You know, we, yeah. How do we know how much of it then is, is the word of God and how much is what? what you know, well, it's all the word of God. But it, the question is, well. Through man's eyes, so therefore could be wrong. Well, it's all, it's all inspired by God. Yeah. Um, Jesus is the word of God. Um and if Jesus is what God is like, then we have to start there. If Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who Yahweh is, which he says he is and, and Hebrew says he is, then that has to, so this is what God is like. Does that look like him? Some, we're, we're, you know, we're missing something. We, we are misunderstanding something or, or that, that is inspired. So it's there for a reason. Maybe it's there to tell us that, that this, they're just assuming the same things as their culture. And, I mean, even, even recently that in, in, in Hofreiter's book, he talks about, uh, it recorded that one of the pastors in Rwanda, um, I can't remember whether he was Hutu or, um, I can't remember which tribe he was, but he, he basically told his congregation that they were to go and, uh, and uh, dedicate all the other tribe to, to, to God. And, and if they didn't do that, then they would be in disobedience to him. And, you know, he sent them out to slaughter people, a, a Christian pastor, who, as far as I'm aware, is still a Christian pastor in Rwanda. You know, that, and we hear that now, and we just think that that is, there's no way God said that to you. 
And if we think that now, is it a different God in the Old Testament? Because that's what um, one or two of the early church fathers thought, and were called heretics, Marcion. Um, or or are, we to, are we to understand something else from it? If this is around love, if the role of Israel is to uh, bless the nations, <laughs> does that look like blessing the nations? That's not an answer at all, but... If I, if I use enough names and make it confusing enough, you'll we'll just say yes. Anyway. I'd love to encourage us to just spend five minutes on our table talking about what this might mean for you and me. How you, what, how you, I mean, maybe that's helpful for you. Maybe you just want to go away and think about it, in which case feel free. But... Uh, I want to first say thank you to Matt for giving us a bunch of really interesting insights um, and information. Um, but why don't you just do that? Why don't you turn our tables? What does this bring up for you? What does it mean for you today or for us today? If we've got, I mean, uh, it's what? Spend five minutes and then I just love to hear five minutes. What we'll have to wrap up around half eight, something like that. Is that all right?